Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Gucci Podcast in collaboration with Chime for Change and Equality Now to celebrate International Day of the Girl, the second issue of the Chime Zine and the new Chime for Change campaign, Let Girls Dream. In this episode, Editor-in-Chief of Teen Vogue, Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, speaks to four inspiring individuals and youth activists about their efforts to drive change within and for different communities across the world. Sage Dolan Sandrino is a youth creative and activist. Shitesca Martinez is a climate warrior and youth director of Earth Guardians. They are together with Winona Guo and Priya Volci, Choose co-founders and authors of the book, Tell Me Who You Are. Gucci's creative director, Alessandro Michelli, says, All human beings are created equal, regardless of gender. There should be no boundaries, no hierarchy, and no violence. My name is Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, and I am here with some very special guests. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and we wanted to start with a quote of Alessandro Michelli because we're here in New York City recording an episode for the Gucci podcast together with Chime for Change, the global campaign founded by Gucci in 2013 um, to unite and strengthen the voices speaking out for gender equality, and we are joined by four young individuals today so I'll have everybody go around and introduce themselves quickly. Hi I'm Sage. I'm an 18 year old young creative and um, art activist. I'm the director of a small zine called Team and a creative studio and yeah that's me. Hi. (laughs) Hi my name is Winona Guo. My name is Priya Volci. Um, I'm 19 years old. I just turned 20. <laughs> we are both college students and the co-founders of Choose, which we co-founded in sophomore year of high school to equip every American with racial literacy. My name is Shuteska. Um I'm 19 years old. I'm from Boulder, Colorado. My family's from Mexico City. I'm the youth director of an organization called Earth Guardians that works very broadly to empower young people to use their voice and their passion to create change in their communities. Um, I'm a hip-hop artist and a creative and stuck to be here. Okay, so very general question to start for everyone. Obviously, you guys are all content creators and really have different um, initiatives as far as like what you stand for and, and what you're really trying to uh, create change in this world. How do you feel like you are connecting with your generation differently than anyone else? So I think something that's different about our generation is I, I think like the most popular thing is like oh well we have like social media we have the internet we're able to connect our generation is the most diverse generation yet and um we are and with that diversity we are the most intersectional and with intersectional identities comes an inherent level of fluidity and the more intersectional identities that you occupy the more there is this connective tissue between you and um your peers and although my focus may be the rights of queer and trans people of color, uh, queer youth. I am also Afro-Latina. So there, there's parts of my identity that draw me to multiple other movements and youth fights that are being led across the country. And um, my focus widens, and so does the language that I now use. Um, so do the people that I reach out to. So I think something that's different is that we're much more intersectional and with that intersectionality comes a heightened level of connectivity and responsibility overall. I feel like that's absolutely key. 
I think that's like a, a defining feature of our generation. And I think that when we look at the issues that we're talking about, like we can sit here in a room, people that represent and have grown up with like focuses on different movements and in different causes and still find like a great amount of relatability to one another and to the struggles that we are all um, kind of up against because there is that heightened sense of like this is kind of, I think there's a greater sense of the collective as mm-hmm. well. Which I think is helpful because like we're on the same mission whether it's gender equality or racial justice or climate justice like it's it's in the same vein of like building a more prosperous just sustainable healthy future for everybody down the road so yeah yeah and because <laughs> of that diversity like we learned this stat that kids start showing signs of prejudice and stereotyping at three to four years old but the first time the two of us ever talked about race was 10th grade so what we're trying to advocate for racial literacy is all about making sure that as we move into the world and step into action, we're literate on the topics that we're all fighting for as a 21st century life skill. Yeah, I think there's this myth that young generation, our generation, we've had so much social progress. You know, we are progressive, we are informed, we are involved. And I think though there has been, of course, so much, for example, in our work, racial progress, like we can't forget the the racial domination that continues right to today. And when we first started this work in sophomore year of high school, it was not just the older white men we would meet on the street who would tell us we don't need to be doing this work and we should be silent, but it was our peers, it was our friends who would tell us, you know, you're creating a problem where none exists, right? And so I think for the two of us, we've, you know, identified that the problem is being perpetuated in our schools, right? We never talked about race growing up in school, even though, you know, in kindergarten, I asked a girl for a play date and she was like, I don't hang out with girls like you. I don't hang out with Chinese girls. Like Priya was given skin bleaching products as a birthday present, right? So like, even though these things affect us, all of us in, in different ways, intersectional ways from such a young age, we're not talking about it with our friends at school with our parents, their families, so so many of us are not. And so for the two of us, a lot of our work has centered around how do we equip young people specifically, you know, if we want to, if we want a future generation of of social justice, we have to equip our our young generation now, right, to to become those, those socially conscious leaders. Like how do we equip young people with those tools today? I mean, so if we're talking about equipping people, I think especially with us being here with Equality for Now, that has a lot to do with legislation and actually changing things. So how do each of you really feel like you are pushing the movement forward? Because, I mean, I think one unfair but also sometimes true assumption of millennials and and Gen Z is that, you know, we love to use a hashtag. We love to do the social media jam. But like, how are you actually changing things day to day? So when we started this, um, we were in the realm of raising awareness. So we'd go downtown when we were sophomores in high school, 15 years old, tap random people on the shoulder, ask them for their stories about race and use them as testimonies to bring back to our friends who were like, you're starting a problem where none exists and and show them that race impacts everyone. And we spoke at our own high school faculty meeting and our teachers came up to us the next day and they were like, we appreciate you raising awareness. We would, it would be helpful if you could give us with direct next steps on how do we actually talk about race in the classroom. For many of our white teachers, they talked about how they don't want to offend the only student of, student of color in the classroom. They don't want to use the wrong words. Um, there's no support from administration. So then we moved into thinking, how can we leverage those stories that we had collected and create some kind of tangible tool. And we think about how in the state of New Jersey, where we grew up in Princeton Public Schools, financial literacy is required, but racial literacy isn't even mathematical literacy, science literacy. So what what we're trying to do is create tools for educators and everyday Americans to introduce racial literacy into their lives and eventually work towards required K-12 racial literacy curriculum. 
So right now we have like a pilot session going with an educator advisory board to give legs to the tools that we're making. One legislative push that we've been working on is just required racial literacy curriculum in all K through 12 schools. That would be amazing. Um, but we yeah. see that as kind of two pronged, like this one piece about literacy and this one piece about leadership, this piece of being equipped in both our, our minds and our hearts, you know, deeply, fiercely, unapolog- unapologetically caring about this issue, and then also having the larger systematic historical understanding of this issue in our minds, bridging those two gaps first in, in our racial and intersectional literacy, and then through that, being being equipped with the tools to lead and, and mobilize and, and, and pursue concrete legislative change, for example, in our communities. So... Just in 2018, I concluded work with the Aspen Institute. So for two years, we were working. Um, I was a national commissioner. I was a, youth, I was a national youth commissioner on um, the Commission for Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. So in short, that's SEED. And what social, emotional, and academic development are, we have these, these pillars that like, it's important that students develop social skills, which are usually deemed these soft skills, how to collaborate, how to listen, how to articulate thoughts alongside academically developing. And usually academic development um, and academic excellence are the focus of many school systems and really just uh, the academic community at large. It's like, how, what are your grades and how good are you at math? How mm. good are you at English? How good are you at science? And then after we see how quote unquote good you are, right, what kind of money are you going to end up getting from that? Or what kind of push out are you going to get at school? So I've done work around push out with the National Women's Law Center. I was a co-author on Dress Coded, which was a report specifically focusing on the disproportionate um, effects of dress codes and the kind of um, the utilization of dress codes as a weapon against black and brown girls in D.C. public schools where I'm from, as well as focusing on how we can recreate and restructure the school system so that students are being taught holistically. Because a student doesn't just come into the classroom one day and like, you know, they leave everything that happened outside outside the door and those things are leading to suspensions expulsions and like how do we recreate a school so that students are being taught the whole student is being taught how do we recreate schools so that students feel safe students feel heard um, and there are different ways to kind of excel in school and what different ways are we going to measure that so the way the legislature push that we had at the end was I was an, I was the lead author on the report, but was this youth call to action. So like, what are things that we want to see in our schools happen from restorative justice circle implementation? And like restorative justice doesn't just mean at the end when, when a student, when some, when something has happened, we get together in this circle and we talk about like what's going to happen going forward. It means taking an entire restorative approach to everyday schooling. So that that's two of the things that I concluded in 2018 and now I've moved forward into working more closely with Gucci and Chime for Change. I'll just add to that that like overall in the last like five to ten years of being involved in this work you see across the board like and I think the young people like speaking in this podcast right now a perfect example of youth fearlessly reaching beyond expectations boundaries limitations um, borders to be active members of our communities, be active spokespersons on behalf of these movements that are, I think, more prevalent and more uh, talked about in our culture than ever before. And I, in, in context to the work that I've done, it's like when I was six, seven years old, 
very at the like early stages of my environmental and climate activism it was i was the only young person at all of these you know protests rallies meetings conferences i was the only person of color for the most part it was very much so a space where i was an anomaly where in reality looking at climate and environmental impacts and how those disproportionately are affecting young women and children of color like more than anybody else and so to like break that down over the last 10 years has been this like journey this mission of like me and the earth guardians team of developing and building a platform that can be distributed worldwide where any person on the planet can access this platform to understand and to have access to the tools connections and resources to be able to plug into our communities to use our voice and our passion to create and to cultivate change building and strengthening these connections through like up-leveling the platform that we give to young people to be able to feel empowered to create change because a lot of young people care and want to get involved and want to do more than just like and share and hashtag but lack access to the tools and resources and that's why I think the work that all of us are doing is so critical because we are not just preaching a message but we're we're building a stronger platform for young people to be able to tap into to utilize the passion that we all have for various different causes to influence and to, to have the voice that we have as a generation collectively have a greater impact and be more tangible. I'm curious to know though, because everyone here is so passionate about change in the world. And I think that, you know, as we learn more about the ways that we can, you know, tap into our communities and make all these, this knowledge accessible, how do you also then continue to stay motivated and not get burnt out, especially in this political climate and everything is crazy every single day? Like, what are you, we were joking before this about like, oh, do you sit in silence or listen to music or listen to a podcast? But I'm curious as to what you all do to stay motivated and and motivate those around you, even though it can feel really tireless at times. My activism really began when I was 12 and I transitioned. And before transitioning, I was the only person that identified as LGBTQ, as LGBTQIA, like openly in my middle school. And the the administration had no idea what the acronym even meant. And when I said, you know, look, I'm I'm transgender. I finally have found this language that um, I identify with, and and it's time for me to transition. They told me, you know, just wait, wait. You're you're one year away from high school. Please just wait. Do it over the do, do it <laughs> over the summer, um, and then you can just go into high school. But it's going to be a really big distraction right now to um, your classmates. And from the beginning, my safety my well-being, my mental stability, and essentially my comfort and um, worth in my school has been perceived as this threat. And that's really hard. But that's not just something that trans students deal with. That's something that students of marginalized communities and what we say minorities, but who are really global majorities, deal with across the board. And my activism began in 2013 openly kind of going into boardrooms, talking to organizations when the mainstream conversation about trans students and trans rights was beginning. And it was really difficult because I had the ability and the support system at home to be speaking about these things, to say, hey, like, I know I'm not the only trans student who's being told that I can't use the bathroom with which I identify, that I have to go two floors down and across an open courtyard to the end of another school building to use the nurse's bathroom, 
and that because of that teachers aren't letting me go to the bathroom right because it's taking too long I know that I'm not the only person going through that I know that I'm not the only girl that is experiencing trans related violence and it was difficult because my identity who I was you know instead of being able to just live my life and focus on what I wanted to focus on just live my life it was then my responsibility and I took that on but to educate and people have questions um and uh people have judgments and and that I have to face um and it's really difficult to continue going but one way that one thing that changed later on was that my idea of this responsibility shifted and I have a responsibility not to other people, but I have a responsibility to myself to share my story and unapologetically, like you said, be myself. But also my intention shifted. And I think that this is something that I want young people across the board who are dealing with this kind of this this, how do I continue to be motivated? Like, this is so, this is heavy, this is stressful, is change the shift of your education. Like, shift the goal of your education that, you know, you're at, you do not have to be educating other people. You just need to speak your truth and be yourself and let other people, let, let people educate themselves off of your words. That you don't have a responsibility to others to explain why you matter. You don't have a responsibility to others to explain why your life holds value, why why you should have equal rights, why your environmental rights should be respected, why your why your body should be respected. I found that I was much more connected to activism through art than I was through journalism. And that is still a valid form of activism. And I think that finding motivation and finding like that you will find your motivation when what you are doing is right for you and not trying to do that for someone else or anyone else. I think identifying um, and investing in really good organizations and really good campaigns like Chime for Change, right? That want to hear the voice, the youth voice unaltered and want to support the needs of youth as are dictated to them by youth um, is really important. So finding motivation really just comes in restructuring how you do what you do to make sure that it's what you want to be doing and not and making sure that what you're doing is not for anyone else, but just for the the good of your um, specific community. The only thing I would add to that briefly is um, I think that a lot of us, and, and I found this in, in myself and in my life and in my work, is that when there was a very unhealthy relationship that I had with the work I do, it was because it came from a place and from a perspective of, of removing myself from the rest of my life to be an activist and to engage in activism, to have it be an existential piece of my reality. When in rea- and, and I think when we talk about the climate too, it is of such... Uh, it's, it's referred to as a hyper object because it's so complex and large you can't really digest the whole thing at once and and it's it feels like something that's so out there that many people can't really relate to and so as somebody who's talking about it and dealing with it every single day it's like you know part of you like naturally is like oh my activism is is me removing myself from reality to engage in this like existential cause and what i've learned over the last couple of years is the most some of the most powerful shift in our perspective around this is to integrate it and to understand it to communicate around these issues in a way that acknowledges it as a piece of our lives as a piece of our society as a piece of our culture it doesn't have to be this 
outside thing. And I think that that will shift the way that the world sees activism. Because right now, if you identify as an activist or you say you're involved in activism, it automatically, like, culture will place you in a specific box, right? When in reality, like, being an activist is breaking out of boxes and reaching into many different worlds and communities and causes and industries and, and worlds. So it's like that for me has been how I've been able to maintain a healthy relationship with the work that I do is to realize that this, I need to integrate this into who I am and realize this is a part of me and that this is a part of the world I engage in, not something that's just separate. And for me too, it's like as an artist, as an MC, as, as a performer, as a, you know, a recording artist, all these different pieces, like, it doesn't have to be the activism doesn't have to be a defining piece that like frames the art that I create either, but it can be woven through and integrated in just a piece of my identity in that same way. So I think overall like that has helped me realize like this is this we have to change the way we talk about it. We have to change the way we think about it. And I think it starts with that. It's like this is a part of us. It's not just a defining characteristic or just a label we place on ourselves or um yeah. Activism yeah. is our existence for many of us. Thank you both for sharing parts of your story, thinking about your stories and thinking about the original question about burnout and all of that and thinking about um, the ways the, the two of us, Priya and I, we traveled you know, to all 50 states over our gap year, just listening every day to, to over a dozen of people tell us their stories about their own traumas, right? You know, thinking about our, our own stories as well, thinking about how this idea of, of sharing our stories and, and the concept of, of unpaid emotional labor is not something that we talk about enough, right? To, to not only have, have your own experiences and, and care deeply about others, but also all the time being the one at, at the lunch table, being the one in the workplace, being the one in class, you know, always raising your hand and being like, hey, something's wrong. We got to talk about this all, all the time. So when some, like Audre Lorde, to, to, just a paraphrase when she says like, um, self-care is not an act of, of self-indulgence. It's an act of self-preservation. And that's inherently a radical political act. Like, yes, like we, we, need, to, we need to talk about that. This is self-preservation. But I, I think also this, this conversation about unpaid emotional labor, though, doesn't only show up in the, the ways we ourselves are, are triggered or experience um, oppression, but also privilege. Like I remember we, we, when we were traveling, we were in Denver, Colorado, and we were um, talking to this white woman, Melina, who was telling us, you know, when I have conversations about race with my white husband, this is my responsibility, right? Like I have, I, I have to do this. I have an, a duty to do this as a white woman. But when I talk to my husband about gender, it is my gift, right? Because having these conversations triggers all my own experiences of, of sexual assault and, and all, of, all of these different things. So when I, when I think about, you know, the, the ways in which it is, it is my responsibility to show up in spaces where I don't experience that same emotional labor, I think is, is also just as much an important conversation as, as the emotional labor that we do need to heal from. Yeah, talking about unpaid labor, thinking about whether it's raising your hand to the, the textbook that we felt like we had to make in high school and thinking about the, the labor of going through the conversation with our parents and the difficulties there when talking about gap year, fundraising, all of that. And in addition to the secondary trauma, we would go from interviewing Japanese-American internment camp survivor to Susan Bro, Heather Hare's mom, who was killed in the Charlottesville protests. And we didn't, we never had that language of self-care or mental health growing up in school. So when we started college, I remember we had all these classes lined up in the Department of African-American Studies, social classes. And I just had like a YOLO moment where I wanted to take classes that I didn't have any remote interest in, like architecture, a class on failure. I just felt like I needed to 
compartmentalize my life and take care of myself and realize that that was counterproductive because in every one of those classes I'd be like in architecture class like gentrification you know like <laughs> just bringing it back to race and realizing that it is part of who we are um, and that ways to understand and process it need to be an acceptance of it's not an extracurricular. It's not just, it doesn't just belong in sociology classes. It belongs in every aspect of life. I want to go back to something that you said, actually. I think last, like even just um, this last Pride, I really, I think everyone was feeling like every, everyone's jumping on the van wagon. Um, and, but I'm interested, I think like, I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon and everybody wants to, to say that they care about diversity and inclusivity and all the buzzwords. But what do you actually want to see brands like Gucci, brands in general, organizations do literally to make those changes? Something that I need every every industry member to do moving forward is like relinquish relinquish your control over campaigns like you can't you cannot have an authentic or effective campaign if the people that are leading that campaign are not from the target community there's just no way those people are not going to be culturally competent they're not going to uh, have a comprehensive view of the language of the historical and social context of the groups of which you're you're trying to target so relinquish that that control because you don't have control over that narrative and when you try to when you try to keep control over something you're 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 killing it and you're taking it away from people so at the end of the day the question really is what are you doing this for are you doing it because you care are you doing it so that you stay on trend and you can meet sure meet your meet those metrics when you have your next board meeting they want example of um like a really successful like partnership with with different brands i've done in the past is when it's been like an interest in the story around you know environmental justice that conversation um, coming, highlighting the work, telling the story on a very forward-facing level, which you know many brands are, are trying to do, and, and again, you know, hop on that bandwagon. But then, what I saw in the past working with different brands that has been really cool is like an integration of that internally within these corporations, and like sending people that work within Earth Guardians to in, in the organization I work with to go and actually like offer trainings to all the staff in their Paris office around like environmental uh, sustainability and environmental justice training. And so like they were like invited, they're like, hey, come teach us, you know, we don't know what's going on. Like not only do we want to share your story, but we want to integrate it into our company. And then we did like a line together. There was sustainably like a sustainable line that port, like percentage went back to the, to the organization. So there's ways like that, that I think that whether it's, you know, racial justice you know lgbtq plus like awareness and like whatever community it is that is or that a brand is trying to highlight or trying to you know offer a platform to like i think really coming with a back end of how is this going to be more than just a forward-facing story that's good for our pr there is a really important opportunity for corporations and for the bit like the corporate sector to get heavily involved in these movements in a way that is holistic in a way that is just in a way that is encompassing in a way that is accountable and because yeah it, it's gonna take all of us you know because it's it's it can't just be the people like young people on the for on the front line doing this work it has to come from a policy stance it has to come mm-hmm. from corporations being held accountable and taking responsibility it has to come from ngos like everybody has mm-hmm. a part to play in, in, the, in the scope of the environment and the climate time is running out so quickly like literally the clock of our ability to stabilize things before we hit like the runaway climate effects in the next five to ten years 
is so terrifying. It's like we need all hands on deck. We need everybody mm-hmm. on board. We need all movements to stand in solidarity with one another mm-hmm. to be able to like really make it a holistic conversation. We're on book tour right now, and although we're advocating for racial literacy in schools specifically, we're also visiting corporate spaces, and a lot of people are like, why? Why not just stick to schools? And in terms of thinking about how a lot of these corporations are, are cranking out racially illiterate products, whether it's facial recognition on iPhones that you know don't recognize Winona's eyes or Band-Aids that don't match my skin tone, and so thinking about changing corporate cultures in, in an internal way, investing in what we're specifically advocating for, racial literacy in your corporate culture, but also in an external way, taking a stand on it. I know a lot of people, similar to the white teachers in our schools, a lot of corporations are afraid of taking a stance and stay, saying the wrong thing, not wanting to get political. There's this quote that we love from sociologist Robin D'Angelo that addresses specifically white people talking about how your inaction will still uphold the systems we live in. So your silence as a company will still speak volumes. All the things that you all mentioned were also many of the things that first came to mind, right? Like number one, like training, number two, representation, number three, listening, you know, all of these first steps that create the spaces for, for companies to take their own responsibility to create innovative, creative, socially conscious solutions for how to move forward. One of Gucci's huge initiatives is about gender equality. Um, and Sage and I, we were talking earlier about fluidity and, and how that is really um, prescribed in so many different ways for brands now. But like, how do you think that that really needs to to change and how people should view it? There's this connotation that's attached to fluidity that it has to have something to do with gender um, and that it has something to do with this new radical expansion of gender, which is not new at all, right? But that fluidity is is changing. And like like we said earlier, our generation is the most diverse. And because of that diversity, we are we have so much intersectional connections to each other and with that with those with those emerging intersectionalities and this kind of growing of communities comes a need for new language not because the definitions or the communities that are now being given this new language are new in any way. It's just that we now um, are creating language to be inclusive of those communities. And that the future truly is fluid, that um, we are going to continue expanding language-wise. We are going to be seeing new careers um, that are of our own um, creation, and that things are really opening up um, not that any of that, not that anything is new, but now the, that now young people who ha- are connected so much more are creating and redesigning these systems to open up and to be understanding and welcoming of more and more and more. I think we're actually good on time, but I just wanted to thank you all. Um, This was so amazing and commend all of you for all the incredible things you're doing. It was really, this was a really good conversation. I feel like we keep going on. (laughs) (laughs) We're having you all day. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Gucci, for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special episode in celebration of International Day of the Girl and the launch of the second issue of The Chime Zine, together with Chime for Change and Equality Now. 
To find out more about Sage, Shiteska, Winona and Priya's activist work and ongoing projects, please see the episode notes.